To be a very good CEO, you kind of have to be a sociopath. There's this perpetual conflict of am I acting as a human, as a person, with the things that are important to my values as a person, or am I acting with the business first? Which one like wins? So for me, the I'm Ankur Nagpal and I'm the founder of Ocho. After I sold my first business, Teachable, I had a little bit of an existential crisis and I decided to pause inward and figure out why is this happening? And that's when I decided to just go out on a little bit of a journey and find out what it is that actually makes me happy. When you create something from nothing, ultimately that is the most motivating part to me, the zero to one or the act of creating versus optimizing is what I live for. And with Ocho, like again, the money doesn't matter to me at this point. Making more money is irrelevant. So it's about the sport, it's about the competition. And for me specifically, I don't feel like I won the championship. I still think there's unfinished business. In fact, I think I fell out of love with running Teachable at some point between 50 and 200 employees. The first time I had a lot of ego, it's my company, I gotta run it, you know, I gotta be the boss, all of that. But all I know is it ended up last time in a point where I was super burnt out by the end of it. I feel like there's always a cost to the burnout, right? Mm -hmm. How did it show up in your life? The fact that you didn't enjoy doing this thing anymore? My sleep was worse. That was probably the likelier sort of sign that overall I was in a state of stress. And I think this will be helpful for the audience. How do you find the thing that's causing you stress? The thing that like definitively made it clear that what was causing me stress is because- Before we get into the video, YouTube analytics say that 90% of you guys are not subscribed to the channel. If you wanna see even bigger guests, better conversations, please subscribe. It really helps us grow the podcast. And with that, onto the video. So welcome to the Callum Johnson show. Uh, we have Anchor Nakpal on the show today. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. I know, I'm excited to have you. I've been, um, I've been following you on Twitter for a little while. Yeah, I saw your questions very well researched. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know what's funny? Like, even as I was walking to the studio, I was like, what's, like, where do I want to start? Like, what's the first thing I want to know? And I think always with my episodes, I'm like, I want to get right to it. I don't want all of the introduction stuff. Yeah. I want to get like right into the action. Um, so here's where I want to start. Obviously you founded Teachable. You sold Teachable for $250 million. Um, Can't confirm or deny the number officially, but <laughs> that's what they say. That's what they say. That's, that's what they what say. The, that's what they the say. streets, that's yeah. what they yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you started your own like VC fund, Vibe Capital. You've now founded another company, Ocho Wealth. I'm sure along that journey, there's so many accomplishments. There's so many moments um, that you look back on and it like gives you that satisfaction and that pride. I'm curious though, from your perspective, with everything that you've achieved, the things that you've accomplished, the failures, the, the whole journey, what's the one thing that you look back on and you're like, it's almost surreal to you. It's like, wow, like I did that shit. Like that's crazy to me. This episode is brought to you by Free Agency. If you wanna take your career to the next level, Free Agency is a company that you should check out. They manage and represent talent in the tech industry and they provide you with a dedicated talent agent to help you find, engage and win top of market roles that will maximize your earning potential. No more leaving money on the table. Stop job searching alone and start building your dream career today with Free Agency. Anyway, back to the show. I still remember there was a moment, I wanna say, this was maybe year three-ish of running Teachable, could be year four. We had a summer retreat uh, where we took the team to 
a camp in upstate New York every summer. And it actually started with WeWork. We used to work at the WeWork office. I don't know if you, you heard about the WeWork summer camps. They were pretty wild. But yeah. as a WeWork company, we were invited to them. So we would go there. It would be really fun. Like was, I think the second time we went there, the Chainsmokers played. The weekend played. And I was like, you know, this was, this was really fun. But I still remember there was a moment during the camp, maybe the third year. We were 20 people or so. We'd had a great day in the sun, like playing sports. We were playing spike ball, having a couple of drinks, listening to the music. And I remember like, just like looking around, looking at the team, looking at that exact moment and being like, this is dope. Mm. This is really, really cool that we have this group of people, all of whom like really like each other, are excited to be doing this, all building something that means something to all of us. Mm. And I still remember that moment it felt kind of like okay this is this is real you know we've 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 actually built something mm. um and since then i've like tried to especially the second time around take a moment to just appreciate the process mm. appreciate the moment um appreciate the people i'm working with uh because at the end of the day that's the stuff that's going to stay with you you're not going to you're not going to remember the like i don't know the the marketing you're not going to remember the like revenue highs and lows what you're going to mm. really take away are the relationships. Mm. No, that's special. That's special. You know what's um what's funny? Like even the audience, I'm sure when they when they like even hear the intro, they hear some of the stuff that I said you've done, they'd be like, what what about the what about the money? Yeah. That would be the first thing, yeah. right? Like um like what's the feeling of like an exit like that? So many people think about that, right? Like mm -hmm. even um when you want to do like the lottery or something. Yeah. It's almost like that. It's like, oh, what if I won yeah. $200 million, yeah. $300 million, Like, what, what would I do? Um, I'm curious, like, even from your, from your early years, like your mm -hmm. formative years, what was your relationship with money? Like, did you care about it? Was it a big thing to you? Yep. Uh, like, how much of a motivator was that to you? So I think something, especially now that I talk to a lot of people about money, I realize a lot of your attitudes about money, like most things are formed very early in life. Like, you know, it's the things that your parents may say as a throwaway comment that really stays with you. And for me, I remember the money that changed my life was not what happened at Selling Teachable. It's what happened when I was 19 or 20 years old, when I was in college. And my parents had spent their entire life, they were like, you know, middle class working in the Middle East, saving money for me to go to college in a way that like they spent differently for their entirety of their life just to be able to afford to send me to America, right? Mm -hmm. Like the cost of living differential was so much, it was really, really expensive. But when I was in college, I built a business that was, you know, creating Facebook applications, making a little bit of money online. And there was a point in my second year of college where I realized I could actually pay for the majority of college myself. Mm. And that was completely transformational because prior to that point, money was this like source of guilt where I'm like, oh, my parents have worked their entire life just to be able to do this for me, mm. that it was kind of this load on, on me. But as soon as I could pay for college, I'm like, this is awesome. I don't have to go to class anymore. Like, this is my <laughs> money, right? Like, like, literally, I was so guilty. I would always go to class even though I didn't want to because I'm like, oh, my parents have worked really hard for this. Mm. But later on, as soon as I could like pay for college myself, it kind of got rid of those feelings of guilt about, you know, oh, my parents have spent their entire life working just for me to be able to do this. Um, so at that point, it was completely transformational. Mm. By the time I sold 
teachable. Of course, it was nice to have and definitely, you know, helped in a lot of ways. It wasn't as transformational as it was at that point when I was, you know, 19 or 20 years old. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I think um, one thing I've noticed, like in my own life and then also the conversations with the guests, things that happen in like childhood and your early years and even college years, it like sticks with you. Yeah. It's still, it's still with you. It still has a certain influence. And when I'm listening to you, it's, it's interesting that you say like um, the guilt mm-hmm. and like that feeling. Um, and I can imagine it's like these two people that I care so much about have sacrificed so much for me to just be in this position. Mm-hmm. And there's almost like, I can imagine the thought is like, I, I, need to, I need to do something with that. I need to capitalize on that. You think for you, like when you made the money, mm-hmm. did the guilt vanish? Or would you say that the guilt is still something that you wrestle with today? I think the guilt evolved right i think it i think earning that money and being able to pay for the majority of college myself was kind of freeing Mm. in that i now felt like i could spend my time the way i wanted to so it helped the guilt then sort of took a different form and i think it's sort of more similar to like immigrant guilt of like oh my parents have worked so hard to like for me to have a better life but now they live much further away and i see them less often and the guilt took a different form it's still there in some shape but a different form more of like and a lot of immigrants have this right your fam your your parents like make a lot of sacrifices they work really hard just for you to have a better life Mm. but very often by virtue of you having a better life you're actually further away from them as they get older Mm. and i think that's the form the guilt took it's less about sort of the financial aspect more about they're getting older and you know we're we're like geographically far apart but that's almost a sacrifice they had to make for me to live a better life. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because um, I think like maybe as like a culture and people, and maybe it's a Western thing, I don't know. But we, um, we spend so much time thinking about money, yeah. right? Like we're obsessed with money. And a lot of the times we have these problems in our life. Maybe it's a problem with like a relationship. Um, Maybe it's a problem with ourselves or like an insecurity. And we think money is going to be the solve. Like money is the solution. If I just had more money, then everything else would be resolved. And it's interesting listening to you because it's almost like, you know, it feels like a trade-off. It's like you're swapping one problem with the next. It's like, okay, now I have more money, but there's also, there's more distance. Mm-hmm. Um, as you've, earned more money what would you say are some of the what are the things that have come with it what is like the what's the dark side to money that i guess people wouldn't really know in general i think having money is is great i'm not going to sit here and be like woe is me and you know things are (laughs) things are yeah things are awful um i think the framing i like is like when you have money you've solved the money problem Mm. but that's all it that's all it really is right Uh, So for me, the freedom, like money has meant freedom and that's been great. It's, you know, I've been able to go ahead and like live the life I want and do the things I want. And I think that has been, that has been awesome. Um, So I wouldn't say there's, there's necessarily been a dark side to it. Mm. 
as much as you know like you just realize you've solved the money problem and every other thing that you you may be dealing with is is, is still there mm. uh but for me it is you know it's definitely been something that like something i noticed for instance is when i sold my business it did not change my day-to-day reality as much as when i stepped away from being ceo that changed my day-to-day reality much more mm. but having the money was like a pathway to doing that so mm. even like when you think about like money and happiness right like it does not directly give you happiness there's a ton of indirect ways of using money to be happy a good example is like being generous with people that's like clearly shown it will make you happier mm. or you know because of having money you can spend more time with people you care about which makes you happier mm. like so there are ways of sort of you know using it as a tool to make you happier but i don't know like buying a bunch of like expensive shit that's going to like be so fleeting mm. that i don't think that's 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 really and i think that's when people get hung up on right like they they do that they like buy a bunch of like material possessions and they're like okay this hasn't changed my baseline mm. you think um you think that mindset that you have now surrounding money is different from how you thought when you were 18 19 how has it shifted i think it's it's evolved for sure but i remember my friends found it very strange even when i was fortunate to make money when i was you know 20 21 years old i was remarkably like not stupid about it like i did not do like i did mm. not like i did not you know go to vegas and like gamble a bunch i did not yeah. buy a bunch of stupid things the, the stupid thing i bought was like a nice apartment in san francisco which is like an investment right so like yeah. even then i think and i think i it's probably just the way i was raised where we were you know middle class growing up and as a result like my instincts were always like oh save it right because who knows who knows what may come in the future mm. you're better off saving it in fact like that sort of mentality probably was a mistake because i didn't invest money because i was like oh you know let's just keep it in a bank account which now knowing more about money i'm like it's one of the stupidest things i could have done mm. but it was sort of this middle class mentality of like you know who knows like who knows what things will look like in the future you should save it which looking back now it's kind of atypical for like a 20 or 21 year old mm. uh, where instead of like wanting to like you know flex on people i was like you know i'm just going to save this and and keep it but that's that's sort of how i was then and even now it really you know i think like from a quality of life perspective i have a nice house now i like when i travel i like to travel ideally on a flat bed if it's a long flight but like yeah. outside of that i haven't had like major major sort of lifestyle upgrades it's it's just more been like now i don't have to think about things like if i go to a restaurant i don't care what i order if i go to the grocery store i'm looking at the price of stuff I'll get room service. Like it's all these small things that I think have changed, but bigger picture I'm not my lifestyle has not is not looking dramatically different. Yeah. I'm curious like has there ever been um has there ever been a pull towards that? And what I mean is like um so often you see the stories of like someone gets money, the Lambo. Yeah. The Lambo's <laughs> yeah. coming. Yeah. I'm going on fancy holidays. I don't know. I'm popping bottles. I'm there's something's happening. Was there ever a pull for you? I mean, dude, like literally after I remember I sold the company, it was 2020, it was COVID, we were in lockdown. I wanted to get a car because I'm like, oh, I can go to the beach, I can go surfing. Even then I bought a second-hand car. Like it didn't, <laughs> it didn't make sense. Like it, I was like I was like you're losing so much of like the retail value. I'm just going to buy a second-hand car. Yeah. So, not not really like but I think the thing that's been nice is like okay, let's say I'm like going on a vacation with my parents or family or whatever. 
we can like stay in a nicer place than they've like ever stayed at before. And that, that feels like great for the entire family. So things like that, I will absolutely like spend money on, but no, some things I'm still like pretty, pretty cheap about. Yeah. That's interesting. That's funny. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to talk about like your, um, early years mm-hmm. and in, in specifically, um, if you were going to like kind of look at yourself now and like where you're at and what you've built and what you care about, and you were going to go back, back in time and just think about like, is there a, is there an experience? Is there a story? Is there a moment that if I was trying to understand your story and understand who you are now, like it would have to be in there. Like if we were doing a documentary of your life, this is almost like the first scene, like where would it start? Where would it begin? Like, how would I tell the story? So I think something that was very formative in my life, like growing up, and I think a lot of other people have that is like sport was always a very integral part of like, like my identity, like from age, I don't know, six, seven onwards. I was a huge cricket fan. I played cricket internationally for for the country I I was in. And there's probably like, I don't know, age until like age 12, 13. At some point, I'm like, I'm actually pretty good. And there's a chance this could, you know, be a thing. And then, of course, at a, I don't know, 14, you realize you're good, but not that good. And mm. sort of adjusting to that. But I think so much of like being part of a team and like it was just such a big part of like like who I was as a person that sort of stayed with me. And it's at some level, I think I think team sports and building a business have a lot in common. And I think it's a lot of those identities are sort of forged early on in life. So I think like I still remember like some of the most like pain I've ever felt. And now, you know, it seems like trivial. It's like when you're benched for an important game or I remember I was. Yeah, I still remember like I used to, for instance, have a lot of anxiety when I would go out and bat and cricket because it's kind of intimidating. You're out there by yourself. There's a lot of people around you. and. At some point, I think at the age of 14 or 15, I just mentally like realized I could go out there, take two deep breaths and be overcome with this sense of calm mm. where I could block everything else out and be focused on like what was happening. And it, it happened to me one day. And since that point, I've been able to sort of channel that energy mm. in other situations. So like, let's say, you know, I'm now going up to speak at a conference and it's like a ton of people and it's intimidating. I can literally go back to that experience of what it was like to be out there batting and then have that sense of calm, take two deep breaths mm. and kind of be in the zone. And I think, so it's all these like little lessons, you know, that you really learn from sport that have kind of stuck with me. Yeah. You know, um, the cricket thing is interesting. My, my dad loves cricket. Yeah. Like he played, um, he played when he was younger, like in university yeah. and stuff. I'm not going to lie. I always thought it was kind of boring. Yeah. Especially yeah. like the test cricket yeah. where they're yeah, playing yeah. for like days. But from a mental standpoint, it's actually a very interesting sport, especially if you take like the, the batsman, because especially in test cricket, um, if they're putting up a lot of runs, mm-hmm. they're out there for hours. Yep. And a lot of the times they're playing in like, um, like hot climates. Mm-hmm. I remember watching like the Ashes, like yep. England, Australia, yep. they're playing in Australia. It's yep. like. And I just, I just think mentally, it's mentally excruciating because here's why, right? Because you think it's a team sport, yet it's the most individual of team sports. Because when you're out there batting, 
you are mostly by yourself. You have your other partner on the other end, but you have 10 people around you mm. abusing you, especially like, you know, <laughs> if you play like, like literally talking about your mother, talking about your family, it's like just like verbal assault from all sides while someone's coming in with a heavy object trying to physically hurt you. <laughs> so yeah, it is like, it, it like mentally toughens you up, especially as a kid, because like, Ball's pretty hard. Like your natural instinct is to like jump away from the heavy object, like the hard object, you know, being launched towards you. So yeah, I think it, it like really toughened toughened me up a ton, mm. and yeah, owe a lot to it. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I remember I had like um, there was a summer like I was like maybe I'll try this <laughs> yeah. sport, and I remember my my dad, uh, he would tell me stuff in like the garden, and we yeah. try and play. Yeah, and he was a batsman like growing yeah. up, and one of the things he would tell me is like. You don't want to try and like hit it for six every time. Yeah. Like sometimes you just want to block. Yep. Yep. And you see that a lot with like batsmen, right? Like sometimes they'll get a ball and they'll just block it. They're not always trying to hit it for six. Um, there's a lot of discipline. And in a way, I kind of, it's like you're, you're almost like waiting for your moment. You're waiting for the right ball. That's the right yep. one to like go for it. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of, there's a ton of parallels. And again, like, I just think from a mental strength perspective, there's a lot in my life I feel like I owe to the sport. Mm. What would you say specifically? I think just like like learning to deal with like the intimidation of that atmosphere, I think just toughens you up considerably. Like if again, like you're just out there by yourself, you know, with this like group of people around you that want nothing more than than to see you not there. Mm. Um and the sense of like, yeah, like being an individual in the bigger context of a team where your entire team is sort of, you know, relying on you. And then, and then also like there were times when I, you know, was the captain of the team, which I think taught a lot of leadership stuff. So yeah, it's been, been a big part of it. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I think that's such, um, it's almost like a skill that you could take into any walk of life and it would be critical. Mm -hmm. I just think about like being able to control your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you're in that moment, there's so many things which are, there's so much noise, there's so much like distraction. And so I'm curious for you, even when you're younger and you talk about, it's almost like the, the switch flipped. Um, it used to be terrifying. Like when I would go out and bat for whatever reason, I would just have like almost crippling anxiety and one day it went away. And like, since then I've just been able to sort of summon that, like, energy and like close mm. my eyes and like put myself back there of like having this sense of calm and i it's it's weird because i don't know what exactly caused that to leave but when once it left it was it was great i would have like crippling anxiety until i went out when i'm out there about to bat i would just like be like okay time to get in the zone and then just be overcome with this sense of calm and it was mm. and now i feel like i can summon that energy at, at any point mm. you know you spoke about the um some of the emotions that were involved in being a team sport like that. And also some of like the more devastating moments of like not being included in the mm -hmm. team or um, these different things. And I, I also thought it was interesting when you said um, a lot of your identity is like forged in those early mm -hmm. years. Those tougher moments, what do you think it did for your identity? The, the tougher moments sucked, right? Like realistically, like, I think tough moments like that suck. They feel devastating at, at the time. But I think there's a lot of research that shows 
having some amount of bad things like you know like bad things that are small enough they're not actually bad to like have deep wounds mm. but having a bunch of them in your formative years do make you like stronger and better equipped later on mm. but it's a very delicate balance right because if you something truly devastating it can actually like hurt you but having also the like none of it is is bad um back to the business world for instance i remember the emotional swings when i was running my facebook application business were crazy because we would go from a facebook application that's making you know upwards of $10,000 a day sometimes up to $50,000 a day but the algorithm would change or we would get it shut off by facebook and it would go down to a zero and this would happen like i don't know it happened maybe 5 7 10 times and it was gutting right it was like gutting because you would like would experience the highs and lows of entrepreneurship in a very very short time period but i think those experiences at that age made the highs and lows of teachable much more palatable because i already had that in my background mm. so i think i think yeah, i think it builds emotional resilience yeah and it's interesting as well it almost goes back to the cricket thing like being able to control your mind mm -hmm. because and i guess in in that context in the in the cricket context the the noise is coming from like the other players mm -hmm. it's coming from the environment maybe like the crowd yep. the people watching in that dude it's cricket no one's watching. it's like school cricket no one's watching unfortunately <laughs> maybe, like, no maybe like four parents maybe four parents are in the crowd, There's no crowd. Yeah. Oh, yeah. all right strike down then yeah. um but i guess for the for the facebook application the noise is um the company like the environment that you're dealing with the mm -hmm. fact that they could just change it at any moment yep. you know what give some more context on that business like what were you doing yeah absolutely so started it when i was 18 at the time, I was interning at Amazon, freshman summer, living in Seattle. Uh, didn't have much going on, kind of hated my job at the time. It was an internship. I was a, supposed to be a software engineer. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> living in Seattle, 18 years old, didn't have a fake ID, couldn't go out, had like nothing to do in the evenings. So I started, and then Facebook announced that you could build Facebook applications. So I started messing around. I'm like, let me try and build again. Goes back to cricket, a fantasy cricket application on on facebook and by the end of that summer i'd moved on and built a few applications and by the end of the summer i was making you know 10 or 20 dollars a day and those were the most meaningful 10 or 20 dollars a day ever because it showed me that i can do things on the internet and make money it was mm. like crazy right i'm like why would i ever do anything but that but then over the time over my college years i scaled that business building you know lots of different applications you know quizzes and games and all of this stuff and it built a really cool cash flow business i mean you know made at its peak, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a day. And over the course of those years, you know, a couple million bucks. And yeah, it was my first taste with entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, what I'm always curious about is like the, the interaction between like strategy and instinct. Mm -hmm. When I think about strategy, I think about planning. I think about um, doing a lot of thinking, having like something in mind. When I think about instinct, I think about being present. Uh, just being in the moment, just doing things as they come. And when I listen to you with these businesses, it feels like there's a lot of instinct. Mm -hmm. There feels like a lot of like, oh, like I like cricket. So like yeah. I just try and do yeah. this application and then it kind of spiraled into something else. But but you you give me the answer. Like when you were starting these businesses, how how strategic was it of like, okay, here's an opportunity. Here's a way that we can monetize versus the instinct of like i'm just doing this thing and it's starting to spiral towards it's actually making money like what was the real motivator 
I think strategy at that stage is kind of a waste of time because so much changes that you just like do shit, see what happens, adapt, and then do different shit. Mm. Like it's never like even with teachable, the whole strategic vision probably happened in year three because mm. initially it was just like doing stuff like literally teachable ended up starting because I saw that there was this, there was Udemy was a platform where you could launch courses and there were all these people on YouTube that had, you know, video content. So it started by me going to these YouTubers being like, oh, let me just put your course on Udemy. It was like just mm. a little hustle. Then I was like, hmm, these YouTubers, their courses aren't good. I should create our own courses on Udemy. Mm. And then after our own course on Udemy, like, hey, we actually don't need Udemy. Why don't we create our own platform? Mm. And it was only year two or year three that we were like, oh, the creator economy is happening and the bigger, grander vision of what this company could be unfolded. So I'm a big believer when you want to start something, just execute, like find something that adds value for someone, do it, and then iterate and like slowly find a bigger and bigger problem until you stumble on the strategy. Because if you, you can have the best strategy in the world, mm. but you're probably going to change, your idea will change. So you may as well just execute and execute as fast as humanly possible because that I think is very often the difference between finding something that works and doesn't. Mm. That's kind of a unique, it's like a unique way to think at like an early age, right? Mm. Like to just be like- at, at, me, at an early age, it was not conscious. At an early age, you know, as I said, it was just instinct. You just yeah. kind of was doing, I was just doing stuff. It was never, it was, at an early age, it was very simple. I'm like, oh, this application is making me $10 a day. If I make 10 of them, I'll make $100 a day. So it was stuff, it was like that. It was not even like, there was no bigger strategy. Yeah. But do you, do you, would you say, and do you even believe in this? Do you think you're like a born entrepreneur? Or you think it's innate? I think it's a limiting belief for people to think that there's such a thing as a born entrepreneur. But if there was, I would be. Because ever since I was like, you know, seven, eight years old, I was always like trying to start like little mini businesses, whether it's like, ripping out posters from a magazine and trying to sell them to my dad's friends or like creating websites. There's always like some silly little business I was trying to start. Mm. So from that perspective, yeah. Yeah. But when I moved to America, I was like, I don't know, I'm like a Indian dude who likes computers. I should be an engineer. So <laughs> I didn't move here with the idea of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, it sort of happened, but yeah, I've always, since I was young, been doing, you know, business type things. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I think in, in, in our lives, we have kind of like, um, there's so much nuance to them. There's so many small things that are happening. However, within that, there are certain landmark moments, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's certain moments that you look at and it almost, it tells the story. Uh, I know for me, because I'm, I'm originally from London, moving to America was definitely like a landmark moment. Yep. Like it was a moment where when it happened, everything that happened after that was different. Yep. It was like your, it was... Um, if your journey is like a straight line, it's like a deviation. It's like changing somewhat. Talk to me about that experience coming to America. What were those early moments like? Yeah, so I moved at the age of 17 to go to college. And basically, virtually the first time I was in the country was my first day of, of, of college. So um, those, they're always intertwined at this point. But I think, I think America happened at an interesting time because... I don't have a sort of dominant culture in that I'm from India, but we never lived in India. We mm. grew up in Oman in the Middle East where 
you're still an outsider, right? We're not we're not part of the local sort of population. And moved to America at 17, which I think is sort of the latest in life you can move when your brain is still in a formative sort of stage. Because mm. I have friends, for instance, who moved after college, and it's very different from the people who moved during college. Mm. So it was an interesting experience. I mean, I think I had to... It's I had to learn a new culture sort of as I went along, right? Because thinking about my identity in high school and my identity in college, you have to reinvent yourself. Uh, but very, very grateful for that because like in a lot of ways, I think I was much more suited to the American education system mm. than the Indian education system where I was not a particularly I was not particularly good in my Indian high school, but I went to America and I'm like, this is kind of easy. Like this is actually, <laughs> I can, I can actually like work the system to my advantage. Like mm-hmm. very early on, I realized that you can kind of make up your own rules in an American education system. You can make your own major. You can like dabble classes. No one cares if you actually go to classes as long as you like get your stuff done. Mm. The Indian system is very regimented. You have to like, you know, memorize a lot of stuff and like just put in a lot more like, you could coast by less on being smart. You had to actually put in the work. Mm. But the American system is a lot you can just kind of coast if, you're, if, you, if you can work the system. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things you said, you said um, for the people that moved to America or just moved in general before college, the impact on them was different than the people that moved after. From what an identity you- perspective, I think the latest in life you can move somewhere and have where you move, like kind of become your your full identity is probably that age, 17, 18. Like I literally see my friends who moved here for graduate school from mm. like India or something. Their identity is like forever Indian, you know, because mm. they, like that was the last sort of time. <laughs> yeah. But those four years, you move in college, I think you're still a little bit more malleable. You're, you're a little, you're, you're who you become and your overall identity is still up for grabs at that point. Yeah. The identity thing is interesting because it's like, I don't know. It's almost hard to put your finger on it. Mm-hmm. Like even for me, um, I end up in these weird, I'm, I'm always like in the middle ground. Yeah. Because I grew up in London, but then my family's been in the States since I was like 10. So I've kind of been coming here yeah. for a while. But then I went to university in the UK and then I also went in Canada. And you get like this, this mix and... Uh, and then you bring in like race and stuff yep. and you bring in like your interests and it's so hard to put your finger on like even what what your identity yeah, even I is. Yeah, I mean, the my life experiences have basically led me to believe that countries are kind of arbitrary, right? But like again, for a lot of people, the identity of the nation they belong to is one of the strongest identities they have. For me, it's just not a specifically strong identity. Mm. Um, it's just for me, like one of many different identities. Like we all have identities, right? Whether you're a New Yorker, whether you're like a member of a friend group, whether you're a member of a country. And in recent years, I don't know, last hundred, 150 years, like what country you are feel has felt very important. Like, you know, one of the more important, like tribal identities, mm. but in my life, it's just not been that important an identity. And as I think about, you know, the world moving forward and, you know, like, I think it, for a lot of people, it may start feeling increasingly arbitrary. Mm. All of which is not to say I'm not like super, super grateful for what America has given me because I don't think I could have done what I've, what I've been able to do here. I don't think I could have done that anywhere else in the world. So I'm very mm. grateful you know, for this country. But yeah, from an identity perspective, I still feel like you know, very mixed identities. Yeah. 
it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? I, I, um, I went to London a few weeks ago. I remember someone, because it's, I think people, people that you grew up with, mm-hmm. they can kind of sense the shift when yeah. you move somewhere else. They're like, yeah, this sounds yeah. a bit different yeah. than when you last came here. Um, do you ever think about like, what would you be like or what would you have done if you had stayed in Oman or if you were in India? Like, you still think you'd be like running a business somehow? Well, like, like how I would think, you think? I think I would have eventually figured out a path to run a business, but it would have been a lot murkier. I think it would have been a lot harder. Mm. And I think I would have like struggled to differentiate myself much more. That's one of the big reasons mm. I'm such a believer in like opening up the borders and like letting more immigrants in. Like I say this facetiously, but there's a lot of truth behind the statement. It's like, I think I've come here and done pretty well but I'm nowhere near the smartest kid back home, right? So, so like, think about that. You're like, they've got smarter yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the more yeah. we sort of open up, like, pathways for smart people to move here and start businesses and stuff, like, the country will benefit, so. Hmm. You know what's interesting? I, when you said, um, and it goes back to the identity point, you said in Amman, we were almost like, we were like outsiders. And then even just then, you said, um, I wouldn't have been able to differentiate myself. What does it mean to you to be an outsider? And then also, what do you think the impact of that is? Because there is an impact yep, for you, yep. right? Like that. And by the way, I think that's what's really cool about America and probably the UK too. They're amongst the only places in the world where you can move as an outsider and eventually feel part of the local population. Like, mm. like I'll give you an example. Like you can move to America in your teens and by the time you're 30, 40, you can truly feel American. You can truly feel like I am part of the like, like dominant population. There's not many countries in the world you can do that. Like if you're not Indian and you move to India, you will never feel Indian. You will mm-hmm. always be, you know, an outsider. Same with like most other non-English speaking countries, but both America and the UK to a slightly lesser, but still, you know, you can move as an, you can move there and eventually feel American. You can feel British. You can feel that. But again, Oman, for instance, you know, you're just never going to feel Omani. It doesn't matter how long you've been there if you're an outsider. Mm. And I don't think Oman is atypical. I think most countries are like that. You can think about Russia, think about India, think about, you know, Spain, think about France. You're always going to feel like an outsider. Mm. So, yeah. Interesting. All right. Let's go to, um, let's go to the, like the early days of teachable. Mm -hmm. Yep. It was funny. I was listening to, um, I was listening to an interview with the founder of Bumble, Whitney Wolf, and she was talking about because uh, she worked at Tinder before, in the like early stages of Tinder, and she was talking about some of the growth hacks that they would do on like university campuses, and they would go to like fraternities and sororities and get them to download the app. And she was talking about the fact that like in the early days, it was just a series of these growth hacks. And we didn't even really know marketing. Yeah. We were just like, how the, how the fuck do we get people to sign up to a dating app? It's like, oh, just try this shit. Um, take me back to some of those early days. Like, what were, some of the, what were some of the crazy things that you guys were trying and doing to just grow the product? Yeah, I think everything we did was initially super, super unscalable. And honestly, I kind of miss those days because it was a local optimization problem. Maybe we made $3,000 one month, we make 5,000. So you can easily like push that doing a lot of like random, random things. 
Um, we did all kinds of things. I still remember there was a time when I was speaking at a conference and Conrad, my co-founder, printed he without telling me, printed out like flyers with my face on it and a discount code to buy a course. <laughs> uh, we did stuff like that. We One of the things we did that actually worked really well is Udemy was a competing platform. We built a tool where you could enter a Udemy login and password and it would automatically pull your Udemy courses and upload them to Teachable, which which helped which helped a ton. So we had we did a lot of these things to like really like I was I was doing whatever it took to get a new customer, which included like every day I think I would send out twenty or thirty emails to like all the people on like different people of uh, whose courses I could find. I would offer to upload their content for them. So like our second or third customer, I uploaded. He sent me a flash drive, and I spent an entire weekend. Um, me and my girlfriend at the time, be like literally like we're just like working to upload all of this to um to our platform. It was all very very like like done by hand, like super unscalable for really really long. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I think people would listen to that. Um, and it's funny sometimes when you're on like this entrepreneurial journey, and you you share some of the things that you were like doing. And like some of the just out of the box ideas, people are like, how the fuck do you even come up with this? Like, where did that even come from? What was your mindset at that time? It was very simple. It was like, we, like my mind was like very, it was very, very easy to figure out my motivations. We had the amount we were making in course sales every month and we had to grow that number. It was that simple. Like, like every single decision could be distilled down to that. Mm. So for instance, I still remember we had, our top creator at the time was they were living in Berlin and we didn't have a course to launch the next month. And we were a little worried because we we're like, Hey, our revenue is looking good, but next month it's like December. People are going to be on holiday. There's nothing to sell. So we're going to have a down month. Unless what if we actually went to Berlin during Thanksgiving, <laughs> stayed at the house of like our top creators and like made a course with them, literally like flew there over Thanksgiving created a course with them just so we would have something to sell the next month. It was stuff like that. I, you know, we, I remember I would like lie to, there was this person, Pat Flynn, super influential in the business world. Mm. He was our dream like person to get on the platform because all the other business owners looked up to him. And I would always email him. He'd never reply. But then finally I started like looking at the conferences he, would, he was going to. Mm. And I would email him just randomly like, hey Pat, I saw you're at FinCon. I'm going to be there as well. Let me know if you want to meet. And finally, once he said, oh, cool, you're going to be at the conference? Sure, you want to grab coffee at 8.30 or whatever. Literally booked a flight that morning, <laughs> was not going to the conference, went to meet him, met him, signed him on the platform, flew back in time for my co-founder's wedding later that evening. So all in the same day. So we did, did all these things. And to be honest, like talking about it now, it may seem like stressful or whatever, but it was, it was so much fun. It was actually really nice when you could do these things and it would make a difference to your business because eventually you reach a point where for us to have a good week, we need, you know, 500 new customers and we can't do that anymore. Mm. Mm. You know, like um, as a business grows, it shifts. And I've heard CEOs talk about this, like the, the correct CEO when you're like going to like $1 million uh, in like revenue can be completely different than the correct CEO to get to $10 million or $100 million. Um, companies go through different stages and what it demands from you is different mm -hmm. um what is like your favorite stage of a company like what's the what's the moment in your business that you just really enjoy in the lifetime of a business like what's your favorite i think it's when 
you create something from nothing. Like ultimately that is the most motivating part to me, the zero to one or whatever you want to call it. But the act of creating versus optimizing is what I live for. Mm. In fact, I think I fell out of love with running Teachable at some point between, I don't know, 50 and 200 employees. I don't know exactly what point it was, but at some point I realized I went from like really enjoying what I do to not loving what I do. And as I build this company the second time, it's something I'm very conscious about where if this time it gets to a point where I don't feel like I'm the best person to run it, this time I have a lot less ego. The first time I had a lot of ego, it's my company, I got to run it, you know, I got to be the boss, all of that. But this time I have a lot less ego about it where if it comes to the stage where someone else is better equipped to run it, I'd be happy to step back. Because to me, at a certain stage, running the company was so much less fun. And I'm not sure, I'm still not sure if it's because companies are inherently like less fun to run after a certain point or because I did a bad job as CEO and created a structure that was not fun or Mm. not good or not effective. It could be either one. But all I know is it ended up last time in a point where I was super burnt out by the end of it. And this time I'm like, again, back to like loving it and enjoying it. And I want to want to try and keep it there. So tactically, we're trying to keep the company as small as possible. Mm. But at some point, you know, it's inevitable you have to grow. So we'll Mm. see how it goes. It's an interesting thing. And I think I even saw you put this on your Twitter when it was like, um, there was a moment where being CEO wasn't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And in a way, there must be like so much, there must be an emotion that comes with that, right? Like you spend all your time building this thing and to the outside world and, and just the facts, like it's successful. Yep. And um, you're growing, you're making more money. Like everything should be going well. Yeah. But then to you personally, it's like, I don't like this thing anymore. Like, what is even, like, take me back into that time. Like, what was the emotion? Like, to a certain extent, are you just confused? Are you just like, wait, why? So, to be honest, I did not even realize how burnt burnt out I was or how much I didn't like it until I I stopped being CEO and everything got better, right? So, that's the thing. (laughs) You don't even realize it at the time. But the biggest sign was very often, I would like, it would be a Sunday night. And I would kind of dread the next day. Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are like Sunday scaries, whatever. Right now, I love like Sunday nights. I'm like, can't wait for Monday morning, right? And and for a lot of building, that's what it was like. But at some point, I just started being like, oh, it's Sunday night. And like the other thing I did, which I do not recommend anyone does, is I stacked all my one on ones on Monday morning. So I look at my calendar. I'm like, great. I have like 14 consecutive meetings. <laughs> like, I'm gonna blow my brains out. Like, it's so I think it was, it kind of crept up on me. And I think what happened is I ended up spending all my time convincing people to do the things that had to be done. Right. And part of why people start companies is you can go from an idea to action very, very fast. You wanna do something cool, it's done. But at a certain stage and a certain size, you just build this organization, or at least we built this organization that was very slow moving, where if I wanted to do something, I wanted to like, you know, create a new strategy, a new product, whatever, it was then weeks, not months of meetings and Mm. trying to get everyone on the same page and all of that. And like, Mm. there's a reason I don't like, you know, like if you're a politician, that's all you do. All you do is spend your time trying to convince people to do the things you know that should be done. As a founder, I loved the idea of being able to act on inspiration really fast. Mm. So as soon as that went away, 
it just started slowly like being soul crushing. Mm. And yeah, it just felt like being a CEO is not was not what I enjoyed. Yeah. It makes sense because even when you were talking about like your early moves in entrepreneurship, it was like the instinct, right? Exactly. That was the magic. Yep. It was the yep. instinct. So what happens when the magic goes away? Yep. Um and the other thing is I also and again, I could revise my opinions on this. It's also possible I was not the right CEO and I was just bad at it. But I also think sometimes to be a very good CEO, you kind of have to be a sociopath. Like I think you have to think of the business as the most important thing and you have to think as a business first, which is dehumanizing and like against my values as an as a human or as an individual. Mm. Um so as a result, it's there's this like perpetual conflict of like am i acting as a human as a person about like you know with the things that are important to my values as a person or am i putting the interests of this business which is like this thing we've kind of made up are we are we acting with the business first and to be a good ceo you probably have to do the latter but then that creates a conflict with your inner self where mm. you're not being authentic to who you are so that's the other thing i always found hard to deal with yeah which one like wins so for me, the person would frequently win, but then it was like less good for the business. Mm. And if the business won, it would just cause me like personal stress and anxiety. So for me, it was like a, like kind of felt like I was losing no matter which choice I made, mm. but it's why again, and it's possible like a lot of great CEOs, you know, may just be better at their job where they can deal with these conflicts in a better way. But for me, it's something yeah, I, I know I struggled with at a certain size. Yeah. You know what's even um, the interesting thing about like just seeing people's careers sometimes, sometimes the point when someone was at their, their pinnacle in terms of success, mm -hmm. and you see this a lot with like celebrities, mm -hmm. um, like Tiger Woods kind of comes yeah. to mind, where it's like he's winning all of these like championships and he has all of this success, but his personal life is in turmoil. Mm -hmm. And so... At the point when it wasn't fun anymore, because I think I feel like there's always a cost to the burnout, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe you don't see the cost in like your performance. Maybe yep. the people that are working around you is like, oh, he's yeah. still sharp, he's still got yeah. it. But what was the other side? Like, how did it show up in your life? The fact that you didn't enjoy doing this thing anymore. I think the clearest signal is my sleep was worse, right? And mm. I've never had sleep issues in my life. But for most of 2019, I was like sleeping worse. Mm. Um, and it's something that again, after I stopped being CEO, I saw it improve dramatically. And it's never been an issue since saying that was probably the like clear sort of sign that like overall, I was in a state of stress. And it's funny, because ironically, at that time, I tried to like, do all the sleep hygiene things. I'm like, oh, let me like, you know, like not use my phone in bed, have a dark room, cold room. And none of that really mattered. Yeah. Like now I can do anything and sleep fantastic. <laughs> I can like look at my phone like this. I can drink right before and I'll sleep great. Yeah. But back then I'm like, you know, I'm like, let me cut out alcohol for a month. Let me do this. Let me try and like optimize all these things because I was inherently in such a state of stress. Um, funnily enough, like life worked out because the whole like acquisition offer came at exactly around that time. Mm. And I think even though then it was still a very difficult decision, but I think that definitely the fact that I wasn't, you know, loving the day to day, I think made that a little bit easier. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I almost think about that, that thought and that experience, how much of our life goes that way. We're like, um, I don't know, maybe you're at work and like you cannot concentrate or you just can't motivate yourself. And you think it's because of like some habit that oh, you're right. not doing or like yeah. you're the people love the morning routine, right? Yeah. It's like I have the 25 step yeah. morning yeah, routine exactly. and like this is going to optimize. But it's actually there's something more fundamental. Yeah. I mean, I want to like I, I saw a person on Twitter like having his like 16 step like sleep stack. And this <laughs> kid's probably like 25 or 26 years old. And in my mind, I'm like, you like this is something else is is going on. Right. It's just. Mm. And that's how it was for me. Like I, I tried to look for answers in the wrong places. I tried to, yeah, as I said, like do all these like very specific things and may help a little bit on the margin. But if you're fundamentally in a state of stress, like that's the the real problem you got to go after. Yeah. I guess the thing is, I'm like, and I think this will be helpful for the audience is how do you find the thing that's causing you stress? Because there's so many things in your life. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, even for you, like, how do you reflect? Yeah. So for me, yeah, the thing that like definitively made it clear that what was causing me stress is because everything changed when I stopped being CEO. Because when I Mm. sold the company, honestly, not much changed. It was very similar. Yes, I had money in the bank, but a lot of the same stresses were still there. Mm. But when I stopped being CEO, everything in my life got better. Like, Mm. I was just... I yeah I felt like I had more energy I could sleep like my sleep improved and yeah just became much happier yeah and yeah and that's when I you know was set off on a journey traveled for a couple of years and and yeah had a good time yeah it's interesting like some things are only um they only become clear in hindsight Mm -hmm. um it's it's how I feel every winter every every winter I never feel like winter sucks until it gets nice outside I'm like (laughs) I feel better now right it's kind of the same thing (laughs) yeah that is true, actually. Yeah. Like, even in New York in the last, like, week yeah. or so. As it's you got, just feel better yeah. when the weather gets nicer. And then you're like, huh, was I not feeling great before? <laughs> you don't like, oh, realize it. Yeah, you don't realize it, right? So that it's kind of like that. Yeah. You just, you only realize it when you suddenly are like, wow, I feel amazing now. Yeah. Talk to me. Um, you, you mentioned um, when you realized and, like, when the kind of acquisition offer was coming about. When you even heard that um, the company that acquired you was interested what was even your first thought? Like, what was the first emotion? So the first thought was, so the way it was set up is there was this private equity fund that we had talked to about our fundraise who told us, hey, there's this company in Brazil that's doing, you know, X in revenue and Y in sales. And I'd never heard of them. And I was like, you're lying. Like, these numbers are like, are absolutely not real because the numbers were unreal. And this basically pitched it as a blind date. They're like, you know what? Just meet them. See if you like <laughs> them. Because up front, I'm like, I don't want to sell. And I legitimately did not want to sell. And just meet them and, you know, met met them once and, you know, met them twice and started to see that that overall, the founders of that company, JP and Mateus, they're super, super aligned in exactly the same way we were thought about the world the same way and so forth. Then it then it progressed to okay let's talk about numbers and I was like okay before before wasting too much time let's just see that we're roughly aligned in terms of like valuing the business the same way and that didn't take long I think in a day or two we got to that point and then that point I'm like okay now I need to really think about this right now I need to really think about like am I for instance like am I 
am I doing the right thing for the business or am I overreacting because of my own mental state, my own burnout or whatever? And that it was a difficult decision. Eventually it became an easy decision, especially after I, again, over Thanksgiving, went to Brazil, spent time with them, like in their office, talked to their people. By that point, it became an easy decision, but it was hard for a while, you know, going back and forth. Mm. You know, what's interesting. I, and it'll be interesting to see if you, if you have a similar thing. I think in my own life, like when I'm trying to make a decision or it feels like I'm making a big call, mm-hmm. you kind of get to the point where it's like, you know, you've done your pros and cons list. You've like spoken to different people and like you kind of know the, the, the different parameters mm-hmm. and circumstances. And sometimes I get to a point where I'm like, I'm just like looking for a sign, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm looking for something which is like, it's almost like God or the universe is like, okay, just go this way. Yeah. Did you get to a point with it? You said it was a difficult decision. Did you get to a point where it was like, I don't fucking know what to do. Like what, yeah. like, what was the thing that like pushed it over the edge, which was like, okay, this is, this is the right move. It was a difficult decision until it wasn't. And I, the point it became not a difficult decision is after going to Brazil and spending time with them. And again, I mean, for me, it's all vibes. I got good vibes. I like went there it's, and I'm like, vibe capital, yeah, I'm like, like they're, they're good people. They're good yeah. people. And if they're good people, like that's all that really matters. Like even when it came to the price, I wanted to make sure we're getting a good price. I didn't care about the best price. I'm like, as long as this is like, you know, an 80th percentile price, I'm fine with it. So we never ran an acquisition process. We never tried to like sell to the highest bidder. I'm like, look, I like these people. If they pay us a fair price, that would work. And and again, you know, went to Brazil and then it became like, okay, fine. This completely makes sense. And I'm at peace with this decision, no matter how it goes. Because mm. in life, I'm always like, did I make the best decision with the data I had available to me at the time? Because mm. you can't be harsh on yourself on did I make the best decision in general? Because you could get more data later that could, you know, change it. So it's always like, with the data I have at the time, did I make the best decision? And by the time I was in Brazil, I felt comfortable that no matter which way this went, I was making the right decision with the data I had available up until that point. Mm. Yeah, no, I like that. When you, when you did make the decision, was there, like, um, was there like anxiety? It was logistically the hardest thing in the world because I couldn't tell anyone, right? Like there's months of an acquisition <laughs> process Outside of a couple of executives, no one at the company could know. So there was a lot of like sketchy behavior of me like disappearing for like days (laughs) on end and like just like not being in the office and like, because you can't distract your team. The team cannot know what's happening until it's confirmed. Hmm. And like with any deal, you have to make the assumption it is not going to happen until the day it closes. Hmm. So you're in this like weird like purgatory where... You're like, hmm, I may make a lot of money. I may not. I may not have to run this company. I may have to run this company. Either outcome is possible mm. while you're working to actually negotiate the like finer points of the deal. So logistically, it was really, really hard. But, you know, three, and it took a while, three, four months until we finally, finally got to the finish point, by which point, you know, COVID was starting. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, you spoke about sleep earlier. I'm like, I feel like I can handle a certain level of uncertainty. But I feel like the sleep would be all over the oh, place. Oh yeah, this like, is be just like a window. massive level of uncertainty because like, like the, the two outcomes are so dramatically different and mm. you have to be kind of chill and you have to just pretend it, and it's the hardest thing in the world, but you have to theoretically be outcome independent because if you're not outcome independent, you'll lose all leverage. Mm. So right until, right until two weeks before the deal closed, I threatened to walk away from the deal 
because they were taking so long with the paperwork mm. that I'm like, I'm like, guys, we negotiated a deal. We signed a term sheet that was under the assumption that we would get it done in a certain period of time. If not, I'm going to, at the very least, ask to renegotiate. So that immediately like sprung them into action. They all came back to New York with a mandate of like not leaving until the deal was closed. And that's what we did. Yeah. You know, so one of the things you said, which I, um, I want to key in on, if you're not outcome independent, you lose all leverage. It reminds me, um, I was listening to some guy talk about negotiation. Mm -hmm. And he said, in any negotiation, the person that cares the, less, the least usually wins. Mm -hmm. Where did you learn that? I think it's this school of life, right? You yeah. just realize that it's, and now like, you know, investing in startups, I've seen so many startups like approach this the wrong way where they really, really, really want a deal to happen. And as soon as that you get to that point, you're just, you're just going to get screwed. It's just very, mm -hmm. you have to be okay with either outcome or even if you're not like lie to yourself, right? Like, I mean, realistically, I'm sure by the end it would have been devastating to like not have the deal close. But I kept telling myself, I don't care either way. Like, you know, we're going to, we're, we're prepared either way. Mm. But yeah, I'm sure a lot of it is, is also just what you tell yourself versus, you know, I don't think anyone can truly realistically actually be outcome independent. Yeah. But the closer you are to that, the more, the more leverage you have. Yeah. No, the school of life. Yeah. Did you ever, um, did you ever feel it the other way? Like either professionally, personally, um, where you were so tied to something happening a certain way, because we all get like that, right? Like sometimes it's so hard to have that mental discipline mm -hmm. to disassociate yourself in a way, right? Like we want certain mm -hmm. things to happen. Um, I think the first fundraise for Teachable was like that, where I just really, really wanted it to happen. And it was bigger picture, not that bad. You talk about founders have had, you know, years of rejections. For us, I think it took about two months of rejections. Mm. And I remember those stung like nothing because there you're not outcome independent. You need cash to like run the business. Yeah. It's not like either outcome is fine. Yeah. And there were a lot of like investors that were just the fucking worst. They were just like, you know, like firstly, no one said no. Every like people would meet, it would go great. You're like, oh, this is amazing. Mm. And then you'd never hear back. So uh. it would be this like slow realization that like, um, that's happening. But then also they're just investors that did like bad things. Like I remember like one investor met with me while they were trying to run errands. So this person is like literally shopping while I'm trying to pitch and it's kind of disrespectful, right? Yeah. Another, uh, like another investor, like again, like says all the things they're going to invest. One of the, yeah, one of them said, do you have papers? I'll like sign the papers if you have them right now. I said, oh, I don't have papers, but I'll email them to you and then nothing. Dang. And yeah, someone else like said they're going to invest and then you don't hear from them. And like one month later, they invite you to a party and they're like, oh, let's party. And I was like, like, you know, so there were <laughs> lots of these like repeated things that again, not, none of these were independently that big a deal or that bad, but it was a couple of months of just being like, you feel so close yet. It's not yeah. happening. You know what it is? It's, um, I remember this when I was looking for my first job in the U.S., um and i went to obviously i went to university in the uk and it's like a good university in the uk but here like no one gives a shit yeah. like everyone unless it's like oxford or cambridge maybe like lse london yeah. school of economics maybe they know that yeah but even that is like eh. yeah um and i remember you're sending all these applications you're getting nothing hmm. 
And I had similar experiences to you where like you would get on the phone sometimes with recruiters yep. and they would love you and yeah. they would be like, okay, give me like a week or two, yeah. put you in touch with this person um, and we'll get you into like the final interview yep. rounds. And then months go by and then they're like, yeah. oh yeah, we just decided yeah. to move a different yeah. direction. And like you say, it's not actually any single rejection. Yeah. It's the accumulation. It's the, and it's not even... It gets to a point it starts to fuck with your mind mm -hmm. because when someone gives you it's like they're giving you hope yep you're constantly building yourself up you're constantly like okay maybe this yep. is the one yep. so no it's not the one yeah. um and that starts to fuck with you and you get to the point where you're like it's hard to show up with the same enthusiasm every time mm -hmm. when you've seen the same story yep. play out and so what i want to know from you is like in those moments like what is keeping you going it almost goes back to the cricket thing. It's like, mm -hmm. what is keeping your mind in a space where like, these things are happening to me. This is my environment. This is my situation. How do I just stay calm? The thing that helped the most is I still had a business to run and grow. Mm. And like, we couldn't hire people because we didn't have money to hire people, but I could still keep working on the business. So we were still growing the business itself. So that helped a ton. But with that, it was still a massive relief when we got our first investor to say yes. And I still remember exact, the exact moment where he calls me and he's like, okay, I, you know, like, he's like, is this your thing? He's like, you're clearly smart and I've talked to some people about you. The thing I'm concerned about is like, are you going to get distracted and do something else? I'm like, no, no, this is definitely my thing. Mm. And he's like, okay, cool. Send me wire information. The funny part is he didn't know he was the first. Yeah. He, he was one of the few people who never asked who else is investing. Mm. So he just... I, you know, I made, I let him, I let him assume that there were other investors. <laughs> and at the time we had not even incorporated the business. So he asked for wire information and I immediately like went online, incorporated the company, ran to the bank of America next to my house on like 21st and 6th, mm. like created a business bank account then <laughs> and like casually replied to his email. Be like, yeah, here's our wire information. <laughs> um, but it, it, that was like a good fundraising lesson because after he came on board, Within the next two or three weeks, we got like 20 other investors, closed the entire round, and it really showed how herd-driven this whole thing can be, where people are just waiting for the first person to act, and then the whole mm. thing happens. Yeah. You know, um, it's actually a beautiful thing about, about doing your own thing and just working at something. Um, and I remember actually the moment when I finally got the consulting job, because I got to a lot of like final yeah. rounds and then rejection. Yeah. Um, and I remember the moment when I finally happened my mom lives in new jersey so i was staying in jersey at the time and i'd come into manhattan and i remember i'm on the i'm on like the new jersey transit on the way back and i'm looking like outside the window and they call me this might be like 30 40 minutes yeah. after the interview i find like when someone's actually yeah. truly interested it's yeah. always fast yeah it's never like the ones that has yeah. like taken months and months like it's always kind of fast and i remember they told me and it was like um there was like a pride and it was like a relief mm -hmm. of like the thing that I believed that I could do, but the world was telling yeah. me you can't do actually happened. And it was like this really just quiet moment on the train of me, like just looking out. Um, I'm curious. And you can talk about even like the first fundraising moment or even like when you were acquired, what was that first quiet moment of just like, like I did the thing like it's, done kind of thing i think i think the fundraise is one of the closest ones but the biggest one might have been 
getting the first external customer to like say they wanted this thing. Mm. And I still remember this was this guy's name is Mark Lassoff. He's one of the biggest instructors on on Udemy. And I would like hound him repeatedly to give the platform a choice. Mm. And when he finally said yes, I think that's the first time like the world opened up with like, hey, we've built something that's useful that someone else wants to use. Because mm. customer number one was my co-founder, so didn't you know it doesn't really count. Yeah. The first external customer, I think, was massive, and that's when I remember I'm like, like whatever you want, we'll do it. So like I uploaded his content for him, I set up the website, I did everything. Yeah, and I think that moment was the first time I'm like, this could be, this could be something. Yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. Um, okay, so you're acquired. Uh, the money lands in your account. How does that shit even happen? Like it all just lands in one. Yeah, you just get a, you get a you get a wire you get a what was it a wire? No, I think I got an ACH, not a whatever like the the bank transfer. Yeah, it shows up and I I it was right in the middle of lockdown, so it was a very interesting time where I'm like, wow, like I just made a bunch of money. I could not even go celebrate because, <laughs> because like the world is crumbling down. And yeah, as I said, literally for the first month we couldn't even leave our apartments. It was like the worst, the single worst time of like New York lockdown. Mm. Um, And business itself was growing really, really fast. And honestly, like I probably worked harder than I ever have the few months right after, just because there was so much inbound demand from everyone moving to online education Mm. that there really wasn't a time to like reflect or whatever. Yeah. That was like, that must've been like the best time in your business Mm -hmm. from like a a business standpoint. We doubled as a business in a few months. Yeah. Like we went from, we were making $20 million a year when we negotiated the deal. It was $25 million a year by the time we signed the deal because it was six months in between. Mm. But I think in the few months after that, we were at $50 million a year. Yeah. So massive, massive growth. You ever have the thought of like, oh, I should have waited a little bit? Like every time I find myself finding that impulse, I tell myself to shut up because <laughs> the world does not need like rich assholes complaining about how much richer they could have gotten if something else went a different way. Like, Overall, I'm just so grateful of everything life has given me. It would be a dick move to be like, oh, if only I'd done like, so I don't care. Like in general, I'm just so fortunate in a million different ways. It would be completely not cool for me to nitpicks on such small things. Yeah. So that's my bigger picture thought. <laughs> that's a good thought. Yeah. Um, one thing I always, because I love sports. Um, not cricket, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> cricket didn't yeah. quite make it, yeah. but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who knows? Maybe yeah. after this conversation, yeah. you know. Probably not, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I love sports. I loved playing sports growing up. And I think now, even when I'm watching sports, I love the mindset of an athlete. I love, um, I love the journey of an athlete. And even you see it a lot in, in the NBA where it's like these great players, these players that have mastered their craft and have shown this dedication have put up thousands and thousands, probably maybe even millions of shots. <laughs> And uh, their legacy, it gets nitpicked because they haven't been able to get that ring. They haven't been able to get that championship. And you'll see these players, they'll, they'll tie themselves in knots, right? Like, how do I get a championship? They'll move team, they'll move city. They'll, up, yep. they'll give everything to get this thing. And it was always interesting to me, the story of uh, Kevin Durant. And he leaves OKC, goes to the Warriors. He gets all of this mm-hmm. flack and criticism. And he finally does it. He does the thing, mm-hmm. the thing that he dreamed of when he was a child and he was playing and he was just hooping. Uh, he won the ring. And it's interesting when you listen to him talk about it, 
he won it and he's like you know he's doing like the champagne yeah. thing that they do in the locker yeah. room and then maybe it's a few weeks afterwards and he's like is that it yeah <laughs> like i think i think anyone that's achieved like this huge milestone in their life that it's been building towards there's always that like is that it like what's the yeah it's not meant to feel more yeah i'm curious if you had that i think that's the danger if for you it's like i don't know it sounds very cliched right like the destination not the journey or whatever mm. um for me, it was never that. Like a lot of people, a lot of founders told me, be prepared for this like massive loss of identity after selling your company and like this feeling of emptiness or anything. Mm. I didn't have that. I felt great. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, like maybe my identity was not as wrapped up and it, it could be like, I went to travel. A lot of people also said, oh, you'll travel and you realize travel is not that big a deal. Also, I thought travel was great. I can't wait to travel again. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't actually, yeah. for me, it, it didn't feel like, like this sense of emptiness. And I think part of it is for a lot of people, their business is like their entire identity. For me, I would say it's like 70, 80% of my identity, not my entire identity. So as a result, I think I was just able to find other things to like obsess over. Like, I don't know, like right after I sold the company, I went and like climbed Kilimanjaro. Then I went mm -hmm. through a phase of like wanting to get really good at surfing. Then I joined a tennis league and I wanted to win my tennis league. So I can, <laughs> I found other shit to obsess over. So for me, it was, you know, I just let go of that very specific obsession and found other arbitrary, usually athletic or physical activities to like obsess over. So I didn't quite feel that. With that said, part of why I'm building this company now is sort of to that analogy of like, I actually think I'm pretty good at creating and starting businesses. Mm. And it's comparable to like, okay, if like I'm playing a sport, I'm in my golden age of like playing this sport really well, right? Like I think right now I'm like, yeah, I just turned 34 where I think I'm like young enough to like have a ton of energy yet old enough to have a ton of experience. I think mm. I'm in the sweet spot. So if there's any time to like win the business equivalent of the championship or whatever, yeah. now is it. So may as well give this like one big swing. Yeah. What does it even mean for you to win the championship at this point? I think in a lot of ways, I still think Teachable was a middling outcome. And when I look at Teachable, all I can think about is all the things I didn't do well or correctly mm. that I'm like, it still feels like a case of unfinished business, put it that way, right? Like it feels yeah. like I built this company and I made a ton of mistakes and we succeeded despite the mistakes. I'm sure this time around I'll make other mistakes, but it's still, I still feel like I have to prove a point to myself that you know, that I can, I can do this at a, at a higher level than I did last time. Like as far as like the, the intellectual challenge of building a business, like it didn't, it didn't check all the boxes for me. There's still, there's still more that I would like to see myself do. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do I think that is? I mean, I think it's because one, it's like, I look, and again, I think this is the, the challenge you have when you're very close to the thing you make. I, when I look at Teachable, all I look at is all the mistakes I've made. Like even now mm -hmm. I look at it now and, you know, by the end of it, like I fell out of love with our own product. I felt as an organization, like, you know, a lot of the ways I set things up were not, not ideal. And while doing this, I feel like I've accumulated all this knowledge and how to do this better. Mm. that I want to, you know, I want to do this like correctly the second time. 
at a meta level, why do I want to do this at all? I think, I mean, this is my sport. This is, you know, this is mm-hmm. like fun for me. Like, like I like someone, you know, for like it kind of goes back, right? Like if I was playing cricket, I want to be the best cricketer I can. As a person starting businesses, I want to be the best at that as I can. Like anything I do, like I think, I think there's a lot of, like I'm just a very competitive person. And mm. if I'm doing something, I want to compete and, and, and be good at it. Yeah. You know, it's actually a really interesting thing. So I, I remember um, listening to a documentary with Tom Brady mm-hmm. and he won, I think, is it seven? Seven. Seven. Yeah. Seven Maybe. Super Bowls. You listen to this guy speak. He starts talking about how when the Giants beat the Patriots. Yeah. And you're like, wait, this guy's the most yeah. successful yeah. athlete. I mean, and he's just thinking about like, he's like, oh, that one got away. You yeah. Know? We could have had nine. I mean, <laughs> I, mean see, big, I mean, bigger picture, we're probably all like damaged people in like this like need for like competition. But I mean, I've always been competitive. Even as a kid, like you put me with a friend of mine, we'll like create like silly little games and compete. Like I'm just mm-hmm. like, I will make anything a sport, right? So I will gamble on anything. Everything is competition. And I think that's just who I've always been and I, you know, what I enjoy doing. So mm. so this is no different. You think you're, I'm really competitive as well. Like I just love competition. Mm-hmm. And it started, um, I'm the second child. So I have an older brother and we would, um, we would play football, like our football, yeah. like in the garden yeah. every day. I would lose yeah. every day at yeah. playing football yeah. and I would come back with the thought that I'm going to win and lose again. Like, I just love the, I love competition. Who would you even say, who are you competing with at this point? I think it's probably started for me with my dad where like, you know how parents let their kids win? My dad never let me win. Yeah, like, I, I, at some point I got good enough to win, but that was like very like, you know, years of, of, of getting destroyed. I think it probably started there, but it's kind of stayed with me even when I remember, like even when we were had an office, just funnily enough, in this exact building, we had a ping pong table and I was like, I would, I still like waited for us to hire an employee that could beat me, but we couldn't. And I was, <laughs> and I was like the shittiest boss ever because I would like make my team play with me and then beat them. And, and in the off chance I ever lost, I would like stay there until I won. And it's just, it's just been that for, for me, you know, pretty much again, I just had sports, such a big part growing up. It's no longer cricket. It's now any like, you know, tennis or ping pong or whatever else, but it's just such an inherent part of who I am. Yeah. It's the competition. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Because I remember even, even as I was coming into this, uh, doing this episode, I think something that I really wanted to understand is for the person that dealt with all like the uncertainty the stress, the highs and lows of growing a business and you get like, you get what for most people would be an incredible outcome, mm-hmm. life-changing money. And I'm sure to a certain extent, it's like, if I just manage this correctly, like I don't need to work again. Yep. And it's like um, in, an, in a sports sense, in a sports context, it's like, what makes the athlete has achieved, ever, achieved it? What makes them step out again? What makes you be like, it's like even LeBron right now, yep. like the guy's 38. Um, he like injures his foot playing basketball. Yeah. He's achieved everything in the sport. He's either like the greatest ever or yeah. the second yeah. greatest ever. Yeah. And he's talking about, I, I listened to an interview he did the other day and he's talking about how uh, he injures his foot. He tears a tendon in his foot and he goes to two surgeons and they tell him this should end your season. Like it's over. Yeah. He goes to another surgeon. He, called, he even said, he said, he's the LeBron James yeah. of feet or something. Yeah. 
and he recovers in four weeks yeah and uh, obviously it's incredible but it's also like why like yeah. what what is the what is the thing that makes that person be like okay i'm gonna step out not only am i gonna step out again but even what you were saying i want to write the mistakes from the last business which was a success by like mm -hmm. most yeah. objective met metrics and so for you what is the reason why you're like i want to go at it again with ocho again as i i think we're just competitive people and this is the expression for that competition like again with ocho it's it, like again the money doesn't matter to me at this point like mm. you know making more money is irrelevant at this point the only thing that changes is the amount i go to the grave with like it's not going to change my life at all mm. so it's about the sport it's about the competition i mean this is the thing i do and if i do it i want to do it really really well and for me specifically you know i don't feel like i've won the championship i don't feel like i've I still think there's unfinished business. I still think that the company I started was pretty good for the first time. I think I can do a lot better the second time. Mm. Um, so I think that's that's a big, big part of it. I also think it's a age and stage thing. For instance, I could be wrong, but I don't think I'm going to be 50 and doing this, you know, like gave, revving up for the third or fourth time. Mm. I think like this is sort of the perfect, like I feel like I'm at the perfect time in my life to give this one more big swing but who knows i mean i bet i bet if you had asked brady if he would be like you know suiting up at 44 he'd be like nah <laughs> but then he did it anyways yeah. so yeah I, I don't know i think at the end of the day we're just you know like we're just wired to be competitive yeah you know um it was interesting because i i left my job maybe six weeks ago to do this podcast full time and you know it's even we spoke about like making decisions and you go back and forth a lot um when is the right time like should i be doing this now should i let it grow more um and it's like what what points you in the right direction right what tips you over the edge and i remember like when my mind went to and it really went to this place at the start of the year it was like um we all have like a vision of like the the child version of ourselves in our mind and you can almost think about like the Callum that was like seven or eight, like, what did he care about? Like, who did he think was cool? There's certain people that you looked at and you're like, that guy's the fucking yeah. man or that woman, like, she just got it. Um, and I got to a place in my mind where it was like, I want to optimize for like the child version of Callum looking at me now and being like, like he got it. Like, mm -hmm. he's one of those ones. Like, um, I'm curious for you, when you think about like the, childlike version of anchor um who did he think was like the fucking man like he was the boss and then also do you th like would you even think like if you were to meet the the childlike version of yourself now mm -hmm. would you even think that interaction would be do you think that would be like an admiration or it'd be like oh, this guy i don't know like what would be what do you think that would interaction would be like so as a child outside of athletes i remember the the first like non-athlete person that I thought was cool, like in the field of business was actually Richard Branson. I remember the reason being he was having fun. Like, mm. I think so many people are so caught up in like being this like business role model that they forget to have fun. Mm. I think I feel that especially more, you think about South Asians, right? Like brown people in America, all of our business role models 
are kind of like remind me of my dad's friends. They're all like these <laughs> older, like Satya Nadella and Sundar or whatever. Yeah. And like, they're not having fun. Or at least, I mean, I'm sure they are. I, you know, I probably said that they're, they're living their life. But, you know, they're not like outwardly, at least from a young person perspective, like, you know, having a good time. So when I think about like what is important to me, like, like just realizing that, like just feeling like I'm always having fun has increasingly gotten more important. And the big reason, it's just like, yeah, I think that's a thing that I would, I've, I've always, it's always been my personality since I was a kid. Since I was a kid, I've always like been the person getting into trouble in school because I'm like making fun of people or like just doing silly <laughs> little stuff. And even now as we're running the company, like one of our like sayings internally is let's take our work seriously, but never take ourselves seriously. So I think mm-hmm. retaining that spirit of like, I guess, play for lack of a better word is super important and something that like I want to like keep and maintain as we as we grow and scale and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, the wonder. The mm-hmm. like the childlike wonder. I think I think um it kind of gets beaten out of us a bit like just through like living life. Yeah. Um okay. From where you're standing now from where you I guess where you're sitting now actually. Yeah. Would be the right thing to say. Um if you were going to go back to even like and i don't even know what you can you can even pick a moment mm-hmm. in your life the moment in your life where you just felt the most unsure because this is the thing is i think that i've realized for myself you can be confident and unsure at the same time you can be confident in your abilities and have no idea where the fuck this shit is going to end up and so if you were going to go back to the time when you were the most unsure you just felt like anxious uh stressed maybe and then you were going to go to the point in your life where you just felt great you felt joyous you felt like um even what you said like i'm just having a lot of fun the if the person that was having the most fun was to meet the person that was the most stressed the most anxious the most unsure what advice would the person that's having the most fun give to the person that's the most anxious, the anchor that was the most anxious, what would he tell him in that moment? I think the the hardest part was probably there was a two-year period of time between, you know, running my Facebook app business, graduating college, and the new business starting to work. And in that time, I tried, I don't know, 10, 15 different ideas. None of it was going anywhere. My mom was like, maybe you should get a job at Facebook or something. (laughs) And my dad was like, don't do that. Like, you know, like, like don't necessarily get a job. Like I've worked too hard in my life for you not to be able to like, you know, do what you want. But Mm. things were getting to the point where my mom was worried. She's like, you could spend the next 10 years of your life being a failed entrepreneur, trying different things and, and all of that. So I remember at the time it felt like my life was going in circles and like not in a good way. I was just like making no progress. I felt stagnant was probably the best word. Mm. Um, and what was helpful to me at the time, and it took a while to see that, was to change my physical location. And mm. at the time I was in San Francisco, I changed my location to New York and New York just gave me a wave of new energy because I'm a big believer that if you ever want to change something about yourself in your life, and if this is a very tactical thing, move, mm. change your physical environment. So for me, I moved to New York and literally within months ended up starting Teachable. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that physical sort of change of location was very important. Um, Now, fast fast forward to a time where I felt like just very good. I think it probably took a year of running a company 
and having a team, working in an office every day, and really liking the people I worked with, and just getting the sense of like, this is what I'm meant to do. Because mm. a lot of times, a lot of people still don't have a sense of like ever getting that feeling of like, this is what I was meant to do. But I remember in those early days, like at some point, just, and again, it, it happened after having a team, it happened with those interactions, it happened when we were like, like, how cool is that, right? If you think about what the kid in you wants, that you're out there trying to create something from nothing with people who have become friends of yours. You mm. get to go and hang out with them every day, have a blast, like, like what a dream. So that was probably the like moment that I was like, okay, this is what I'm meant to do. And even now starting a company all over again, one of the, again, outside of the competitive aspect, one of the big motivators is like, there's honestly no better thing no more enjoyable thing to do on a day-by-day basis than build dope things with dope people. So mm. that's been that's been a big motivator. But back to your original question, what would the two versions, you know, tell tell myself? I mean, I think it I think I would tell myself that one, you have more time than you think you do because like I think I was 23 when I was worried I was running out of time. So <laughs> it was like 21 to 23, nothing <laughs> happened. And I was like, you have more time than you do. On a tactical basis, even now when I tell people that are like like stagnant is like pick up your bags, go to a dramatically different location. Like I'm, mm. different locations give you different energy. You can reinvent yourself tremendously. Another reason I'm a big fan of traveling now, change your location. You have more time. Trust the process. Like things will work out. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. Um I wouldn't have listened to me though. I'd be like, yeah, okay. That's like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, I'm running out of yeah, time yeah, at 23. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, you know, let me give you, let me give you yeah, one more question. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I, no, so I just wanted, yeah. Um, like when you, when you change environment, everything around you changes. Um, all your habits change. They have to change. And so I think here's where I, here's where I want to finish is like, what do you see? I know obviously you're building this company right now. Um, what part of the journey would you say you're on? So we're in the formative, like early, like we don't know what we're going to be when we grow up stage, which is, which is my favorite, favorite time because you're trying to create something where nothing exists. Hmm. And it's, it's an interesting time because like, creating something where there's nothing, like the world is conspiring against you, right? It's unnatural and it's, hard to build something but it's also what i find the most personally fulfilling and challenging because it's like it's the act of like building when nothing was there before you it's it's the stage that i've always been most attracted to and it kind of like takes me back to you know being younger and like just starting stuff with the spirit of anything could happen mm. at a certain stage you find what's working and then it becomes more of an optimization problem which is also interesting, but it's not as fun as actually just building from scratch. Mm. You know, recruiting a team, like getting everyone working well together, finding a product, finding people who like your product. Honestly, it's the it's the couldn't couldn't be doing anything more exciting in my life right now. Yeah, no, that's awesome, and I love that as a place to end. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah, absolutely, it's been a blast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the channel. We're having fire conversations every week on the podcast. Before we end the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Free Agency. What if I told you there is a good chance you're leaving money on the table in your career? It would kind of annoy you a bit, right? 
Well, free agency aims to stop that. They represent and manage talent in the tech industry. Here's how they do it. First, they provide you with a dedicated talent agent. Think about this as your career quarterback. They understand you and your career goals. Based on that understanding, they bring you suitable interviews at top firms. You focus on smashing the interview and together with their network, research, negotiation expertise, they will make sure you get a top of market salary. Stop job searching alone and start building your dream career today with free agency.